This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today I'm talking to Nelson Johnson. He's the author of a new book called Darrow's Nightmare, the forgotten story of America's most famous trial lawyer. I suspect that many who are listening have heard of Clarence Darrow. I think he's a pretty important public figure in American history, but I'm guessing that, um, Nelson, you have a lot more to tell us about him than most people know. How are you? I'm fine, David, and thank you for the opportunity. One of the things that most people don't know about Darrow is that early in his career, he was a criminal defendant himself. Uh, from 1911 to 1913, he was, so to speak, a hostage in Los Angeles uh, in connection with jury tampering charges that were brought against him uh, following the successful negotiation of a plea bargain agreement involving two young men known as the McNamara brothers. And the McNamara brothers were, so to speak, arsonists or terrorists because Darrow was representing them in connection with the death of 20 people who died in an explosion and destruction of the LA Times building in 1910. So that's what brought him west, and that's what got him into trouble. And that was part of what was going on at that time was a pretty active uh, conflict between labor trying to be organized and uh, capital, essentially, uh, you know, corporate owners and businesses. And the particular one in Los Angeles was Otis. Harrison Gray Otis. He was a kind of leader of the anti-union effort and therefore became a target for union attention from San Francisco that felt threatened by Los Angeles not being uh, as much of an organized labor city. You are correct. Harrison Gray Otis was absolutely hated by the labor movement. And his newspaper, the Los Angeles Times, was hated by the labor movement. Uh, And people used to refer to Los Angeles as Otis Town because he was such a big figure in the community at at that time. And, I mean, there's so many interesting elements to this story because you, you know, you have Los Angeles, which is an amazing place, and... um, Darrow arriving there from Chicago, uh, Darrow being even then a pretty well-known attorney. He was the leading uh, labor lawyer in America at that time. Um, and this was not by, by far not his first um, trial uh, defending um, uh, union workers uh, accused of wrongdoing. I think he, Bill Haywood was the the famous one. I think that was before this, right? Yeah, Big Bill Haywood trial where it dealt with the assassination of a governor uh, in Idaho. That trial where Darrow defended Haywood and two of his fellow union members, it really sapped Darrow of his energy. He became very ill. He had to be taken by train. His his wife had to oversee him and they had to travel to Los Angeles, and he was hospitalized and had surgery. And when he finally got back to Chicago, you know, he was he was a, a mess physically, and it took him a long time to recover. And not long after he recovered is when the McNamara brothers <laughs> blew up the L.A. Times building, and you know the labor movement and Samuel Gompers 
implored him that he had to represent the brothers. Ruby, who, who was the person who really made Darrow's career possible because Darrow was a very eccentric man, absolutely brilliant, but very eccentric. And he could get lost in a book. He could get lost in something he was writing. So, so Ruby sort of you know, would wind him up and point him in the right direction. And she did not want him going to Los Angeles. And they knew how to play to his ego. And he went for the bait. And he really got himself into a mess uh, once he got to Los Angeles. What, was it also not just the, the ego, but it, was it also about money that kind of, I mean, he was making, he made money, you know, he did, he was successful financially. And I, as I understand it, he was, let's say, profligate with his money. And uh, he, he kind of needed to earn uh, uh, earn his dollars in order to support his uh, first wife and family, and the fact that he was a womanizer um, all contributed to his need to make money. Aside from the ego-driven element of it as well, you're correct, and he did earn substantial fees representing the labor movement because look, there were tens of thousands of union members uh and you know each one could be tapped even if it was for a dollar uh and that you know that resulted in, in substantial fees he, he was a well-paid attorney at his time he took on high profile matters he took on matters that were intellectually and physically exhausting for you know weeks on end uh but the decision to go to los angeles in hindsight, and 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 Ruby warned him, but never never told him afterwards. You know, I told you so. Ruby did everything she could to discourage him because, see, Ruby was a journalist herself before she married Clarence, so she knew she knew who the L.A. Times was, and she knew who Harrison Gray Otis was, and she was concerned that if you know Dara got into Los Angeles, uh, the place was really sort of a wild west in those days, and she was concerned that Clarence himself might have a problem. And she was right. And she was right. Well, it, it, I mean, aside from the fact that the McNamara brothers were guilty, um, he also was up against the incredibly well-funded other side, which not only consisted of the, um, the, le- you know, the legal, um, uh, the, the, the city of Los Angeles's um, district attorney, but also you know, it's almost as if they were the the attorney, the the city attorney was in league with the um, with the um, uh, L.A. Times and and um, you know the anti union guys. They were, you couldn't really tell them apart, and they were they had enough money to finance detectives who um, made life miserable for the other side as well. The McNamara trial. And it never did go to trial, but the, the jury selection process went on for quite a while and the investigation went on for quite a while. Harrison Gray Otis promised the district attorney's office. This was in a day when things like this could happen. He promised that he would raise a million dollars to help the prosecution. And he did. And that's sort of like $15 million today. And most of the money was used for detectives who were really goons who did everything they could to discourage um, a, you know, a, a, a productive atmosphere 
for Darrow and the defense team and also did everything they could to to discourage and hound people who might be witnesses for the defense. Uh, but as Darrow, you know, dug into everything that there was to learn, uh, he did eventually learn that, yes, the brothers were guilty. Darrow was very much opposed to capital punishment. The judge presiding at the McNamara case was a candidate for California Supreme Court, and he would love nothing more than to sentence these two young guys, but you know, both in their 20s. Uh, he would love to sentence them to, to be hanged. That would be great for his campaign. And there had already developed, you know, a, a acrimony between the prosecutor who did not like this this big shot lawyer from Chicago coming to town. Uh, and so Darrow was, you know, Darrow was like, how the hell do I get myself out of this? Because I know these kids are guilty, but, you know, this guy on the other side, I can't negotiate with him because he hates me. And enter Lincoln Steffens, who was, you know, one of the premier journalists of that era. He was friendly with Darrow. He was the original muckraker uh, journalist. And he interceded and he started the negotiations. And he was the person who was able to get the whole deal put together. So that the McNamara brothers, one of them had a life sentence and one of them had had about 10 years. Uh, And so that sort of ended that matter. But what you know, what Darrow wasn't anticipating is that he was going to have problems that come after that. That they, you know, the local people didn't want him to leave town. Uh, they wanted to charge him, and they did. Right, and that gets you to kind of like the the next act in the story. And I think we probably, you know, we don't want to give away the entire book, but it's an incredible story. Um, now you enter Earl Rogers, who was at the time probably the preeminent trial lawyer in the United States and still is well, you know, pretty well known as one of the greatest uh, trial attorneys of all time. Earl Earl Rogers single-handedly brought more innovations to the courtroom than any other lawyer. He is what I would refer to as the father of demonstrative evidence. And what I mean by that is he would bring in, you know, a, a skeleton of a, of, a, of a human body to discuss the anatomy and to discuss where the bullet might have ended or where the knife might, might have entered. He would blow up photographs. He would have charts created. He would create a, a, a series of posters discussing this witness and that witness and, and why you know, they said these things and he said those things and why you ought to believe this person and not that person. Uh, he, he, he was using demonstrative evidence in the courtroom long before anybody even thought about it. You know what? That makes me think about the the period that you're talking about, which is the you know the early part of very last few years of the 19th century, early 20th century, the beginning of a kind of modern modern technological era uh, yes. of communication. And he, you know, if you look at the sort of parallels between what you describe. Rogers doing it's very similar to how advertising was changing at the time from being a kind of old-fashioned print media to being much more of a visual media and I think those are parallel developments they kind of um, 
and it fits in with the advent of moving pictures at that time too. If you know, that's when and and the rise of photography from the late nineteenth century into the twentieth. It's all be, we become a much more visual um, culture and um, sharing images instead of everything taking place in the written word, um, which is a kind of flatter. Uh, and this becomes more of a media environment. You're you're very correct. Rogers was a serious student of the law, but he also was a serious student of how do I promote my message? And one of the ways he began to promote his message was he was a dandy. And what I mean by that is he went out of his way to look terrific. And, and his, so his suits were hand tailored, uh, and you know he had vests, and he he had a, had a lorgnette, which which was one of these uh, eyeglasses that you hold up to your nose. Only he used it to like punctuate his remarks in the courtroom. I mean, his his wardrobe was so special that actors like Clark Gable and, and Cooper would seek out his tailor so that they could they could look <laughs> as dapper as as Earl Rogers did. And, and he was also an extraordinary serious student of law and medicine. He was, he was a professor at a medical school to teach would-be doctors about the law. And he was a professor in a law school to teach would-be lawyers about medicine. He was a very accomplished student of the law and of medicine. And he you know, really wrapped his brain around a lot of, a lot of tough issues. But on his feet in the courtroom, reading that trial transcript was simply amazing in terms of how much control he had over what was going on. And of course, he's the model uh, that Earl Stanley Gardner used to create the character Perry Mason, you know, which kind of makes brought him to life for uh, an entire generation. Because I think Rogers, you know, Rogers did pass away young and was not around after the 1920s. So, but we, we kind of can know who he was if we uh, either read uh, Garner or see the television shows or movies based on Perry Mason. You are correct. It was Earl Rogers who was the basis for Perry Mason. Uh, and again, uh, he's, he's, he's a lawyer that brought the law into the modern era the same as things were happening in, you know, in, in, in publications, a transition to the modern era. He was he was the leader uh, in the in the legal uh, courtroom proceedings of bringing modern things into the courtroom and and making trials very different than they had been beforehand. He was doing things in in California in terms of trying cases that no lawyer in the country was doing. He was he was he really stood apart. So it's, I guess it's pretty easy to uh, imagine your interest in this story in Rogers and Darrow um, because you are yourself an attorney, uh, you've been a judge, um, but I guess, I, you know, what is it that attracted you to this particular uh, Darrow story uh, and that caused you to spend so much, I mean, I know you spent a lot of time in research and a lot of time reading um, you immersed yourself in this story, probably in a way that no one else has ever done. Um, that's a pretty big commitment and it obviously motivated you, but, um, uh, you know, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Well, every book that I've written and it's, and it's the fourth book, 
every book that I have written dating back to Boardwalk Empire, I tr- I'm trying to make sense of something that when I look at the landscape and I look at the literature and I look at what's been written, I'm saying, well, wait a minute, there's, there's a question here that needs answering. I need to make sense of this. And with Boardwalk Empire, I needed to make sense of why was Atlantic City such a corrupt place for such a long time. And, and I think I think I succeeded in doing that. And the two books that came after that, there were questions that were raised that you know I needed to understand. With Darrow, I needed to understand how he got himself into the predicament that he was in. And I needed to understand how he got out of it. Because when I read other books that discussed this trial, and there was only one book that, that you know, did a deep dive into the trial, so to speak. And in any other place that it's discussed, it's, it's a chapter in the book, or it's a portion of a chapter. But I've read a lot on there. I've probably, you know, I've probably read a dozen, a dozen books or so. And what I learned was that none of the authors who wrote about this trial had read the trial transcript. They were quoting newspapers. Well, Los Angeles had about a dozen newspapers at the time, and all those papers had their had their own angle, had their own axe to grind. You had about probably five or six that were very pro uh, labor. You had about you know four or five or six that were very pro you know capital and employers. And so reading a newspaper, you know, I guess it's helpful in terms of creating a colorful background, but it doesn't really tell you what the hell was going on in the courtroom. And so I, I was able to gain access to the trial transcript and, and it was digitized. And once I realized that, you know, I could go online and download it, and that, that's a whole other story, 90 volumes. <laughs> think of how long that takes to download all that uh i had a good assistant at the time and, and she spent the better part of a day just down just downloading the, the volumes because some of them went real slow and once they were downloaded then i you know had them on my had them on a thumb drive and i began reading them and so every morning i'm an early riser every morning i would begin in my day spending at least an hour, sometimes two hours, reading the transcript from the first page right on to the end and making notes as I went along. And from having presided over more than 200 trials myself, I can read a transcript and understand what's happening in the courtroom better than than some other people. Uh, and it was a very exciting read from my perspective because it was a very exciting trial. Uh, and that's that's the better part of the book is, is discussing, you know, some of the things that happened at the trial, uh, and and then trying to make sense of what happened to Darrow's life after uh, the acquittal. Because obviously, if, if he had been found guilty, we wouldn't even be talking about him. <laughs> we wouldn't even know we wouldn't even know who the hell he was, other than this disgraced lawyer. Uh, and so, yeah, I had I had I had a keen interest in trying to make sense of what happened to him when he went to LA to represent these two brothers and then he wasn't able to leave. He, he, he was stuck there long-term. Uh, I mean, really, really was a huge pothole in his life. Yeah. Well, it's hard. It's sort of hard to imagine 
having having your life take such a detour and to be at at such risk. And obviously, this can happen to anyone who is a public figure who takes a position that, um, let's say, uh, people in position of power don't like. I mean, they clearly he may in fact have done what he was accused of doing, but he may not have. And uh, but you know, he he made enemies, and they were out to get him. Here's the thing about Darrow. He was not, not only was he not afraid to speak truth to power, there were occasions when he would get downright nasty uh, in terms of going after employers and going after wealthy people who he felt had abused their employees. And so there were times in the, in the courtroom where he made some really vicious but true remarks about certain employers. And so that made him hated by organized capital. We talk about organized labor, but there was also organized capital at, at the time. And, and, and organized capital had a lot more resources to throw at you know, the labor unions than the labor unions did you know, back, back at the employers. And so some of these trials got really bitter, really nasty with, with death threats and all sorts of things. And Darrow never backed down. Darrow, Darrow was never conciliatory uh, to, to, to organized capital. He was, he was, he was nasty with, with organized capital because he, he felt that was the only way he was going to get their attention. Uh, and he did get their attention. Yeah, I mean, I'm just curious on one level. Do you think that he was aware? Of, I mean, this is, you know, you don't want to say that you're going to allow the risk to over your willingness to speak the truth. But I think for a lot of people that that actually does happen. They ameliorate their behavior um, once they realize that they're at risk. And it seems like he never did, uh, but he must have been aware that he was playing with fire, as it were. He was aware that he was playing with fire. In the Los Angeles situation, I really believe that the leaders in Los Angeles and San Francisco, the leaders of the organized labor movement, they had to have known what the McNamara brothers had done. The McNamara brothers were from Indiana, uh, and they were part of the you know, National Iron Workers Union. And one thing led to another, and you know their eyes got set on Los Angeles. And the next thing you know, you know, buildings blown up, and twenty people are dead. But the labor leaders on the West Coast, they had to have known, you know, the true facts, but they never shared those facts with Darrow. And, and, and Darrow got sucker punched the way more than one lawyer, including myself, has over the years with a client who lies to you. Uh, I mean, you, you, you expect clients to lie to you or to have a selective memory and, you know, tell you what they think, you know, is going to make them look good. But every now and then, you get wooed by a client and they really do reel you in. And the next thing you know, when you realize the truth, you're too far down the road. And the best thing you can do is minimize the damage. And in Darrow's situation, he knew that the only way he could save the lives of the two brothers was to plead them guilty. What he didn't appreciate was that he too was in danger and he needed to get out of town. Uh, he failed to follow Lincoln Steffen's advice with regards to, permitting himself to be included 
uh, in the plea bargain negotiations. And I think Stephens was savvy enough that he could have pulled that off. Uh, but Dara didn't want things to go down that way. And he took a big risk and the risk turned out to really bite him bad. Uh, and then he wound up standing trial as a criminal defendant himself. And of course, you know, we know from history that he did escape um, going to jail for this. Um, and subsequently, and of course, I think the most famous trial for Darrow, and may, that may not be the one that is most interesting to you as an attorney and as a judge, but of course the Scopes Monkey trial came much later and was really the, the, the um, I think, the most famous of all of his trials. Do you, do you agree with that? I would say that's probably his most famous because I think if Darrow was alive today, he wouldn't be surprised, you know, that we're still debating evolution, you know, in, in some circles. But, you know, Leopold and Loeb, he's, the speech that he made against capital punishment and Leopold and Loeb has been celebrated around the world and translated it to who knows how many, uh, you know, different languages. His defense of the African-American physician, Ossian Sweet, who bought a home in a white neighborhood and then was confronted, you know, by a mob that was threatening his life. Uh, that's a pretty famous trial. Uh, and that was in Detroit, but, but yes, right? Yeah, that was in Detroit. But, but I would agree with you. Probably the trial that people know him best for is the Scopes trial in Tennessee. and. He went. He knew going in that his client would be convicted. There wasn't any, going to be any question about that. Uh, I I love the movie. I probably watched it seven or eight times. But I've also read the trial transcript candidly. I think the trial transcript's more interesting. And I and I really wonder if the screenwriters ever even looked at it. Probably uh, not. But again, they they may not have. They may not have. Uh, but. What I do know is that it's a fascinating movie. Spencer Tracy and Frederick March, they're simply amazing performers. Uh, and they, do, they both do conjure up, you know, their characters of, you know, Clarence Darrow, William Jennings, Bryan. Uh, and, and what some people find to be a surprise that I, do, that I do not, having known the history of both men, they were very friendly and cordial. I mean, they got some heated moments, but they were basically friendly and cordial. And the truth is, they were friends throughout most of their careers. Uh, and Darrow supported Bryan's for president every time that he ran. He ran three times. <laughs> he, ran, he ran three times and he lost three times. Uh, and Darrow supported him each time because Darrow thought he was a man. Darrow didn't agree with everything that he, you know, that he proposed, but Darrow thought he was a man of integrity. Uh, and Darrow thought that you know, he, he might make a decent president. You never know what any president's going to be like until they start serving. Uh, and so, you know, uh, th that case, inherit, you know, the movie Inherit the Wind and the Scotia, yeah, that's Darrow's most famous. Well, if you don't know about that one, then you don't, then you don't have it really registered with you in terms of Clarence Darrow. So I'm curious because this is sort of a, a in maybe an inside baseball question for you as an attorney, but do trial attorneys who, you know, litigate, litigating attorneys, do they read these kinds of trial transcripts to learn? Um, I mean, you know, from long ago, because obviously these are, you know, now a hundred years old or, or close to a hundred year old um, arguments, but 
you know, law, the law is still the law and humans are still humans. So psychology comes into play and the way you think about and handle presenting evidence and, and truth and facts probably has some, you know, continuity over the hundred years. Do do you, do you think that trial attorneys have a special interest in reading trial transcripts, trial transcripts that no one, you know, that a civilian would not find interesting or um, kind of uh, as part of the oral history in a way of our culture? Yes, they do. And I, and I know that they do because at various times, you know, I know lawyers who, you know, contacted the, the courthouse and said, you know, I'd like a transcript of that proceeding and they're willing to pay for it. Or, you know, I, I'd like the audio recording of, you know, that person's closing argument or that person's opening argument. Uh, and lawyers do learn from one another. Uh, the law profession, candidly, is one of continual education. And the, the, the average older lawyer is usually patient when a younger lawyer says, you know, I'd like to pick your brain on that matter. Can you help me? They will help because we all understand that our profession can't exist if lawyers don't educate younger lawyers. I mean, it's really that basic because education doesn't end uh, with law school. I think it takes after law school, it takes five to seven years for a lawyer to really know what, you know, she or he is doing. And if, and if they think otherwise, <laughs> they will learn otherwise pretty quickly. Right. It's all, well, in a way it, it makes sense because, you know, prior to the advent of law schools as, um, institutions, uh, the only way that lawyers did learn was through apprenticeship and, um, you know, learning from other attorneys. You're correct. And, and the licensing process in the, in, the, in the United States did evolve slowly because there was a long period of time where if you called yourself a lawyer and you had the guts to show up in a courtroom and represent somebody else, unless you had done something, you know, illegal or, you know, grossly unethical, that judge was going to let you be a representative of that person. And that is how that's, you know, that's how president Lincoln learned how to practice law. He read the law and then he started representing people, but it wasn't any exam for him to pass because he was, he was before there was even an examination process, the examination process, didn't begin in certain states until around the turn of the 20th century. So as I, you know, I know you clearly have spent an immense amount of time reading Darrow uh, and reading his case or his transcripts. Are there, is there another or are there other attorneys, trials, uh, judges who you find inspiring in the same way? Or um, do you feel like Darrow's, um, work stands above others. Darrow's work does stand above others, most others, but I am fascinated because uh, I got to learn a lot about Earl Rogers and his defense of Darrow. And I am hoping that if I can get my hands on the needed materials, uh, that I will begin research towards a book on Earl Rogers. But the materials that I need are in the Bancroft Library at the University of California at Berkeley. And I spoke to the librarian until, you know, the COVID uh, limitations are removed. Uh, no one can, can access what I'm looking for there. Right. Uh, so we'll see. 
but but you know what lawyers do has always fascinated me from the time I was a child. So yeah, I'll, I'll always study about lawyers. Well, I learned a little bit about uh, Rogers through you and and through your book, and then I did a little extra research on him and found out that uh, you know a little bit more about his life, which was kind of tragic, um, and you know because he was uh, a really big alcoholic. I mean, a drinker of some note. Um, sort of reminding me a little bit of some of the stories that I've read about baseball players of that era, you know, the early 1900s. Um, famously, you know, they would get the the pitcher for the next, for the day out of the bar at noon, and he'd have to sober up by one o'clock for a game. And uh, Rogers seems to be a sort of similar case where he could stay out carousing, be drunk, over, just completely overhung, and then somehow make his way back into court in, and give a fantastic oration? Well, yes and no. And what I mean by that is, yes, there are many instances where he had to be sobered up to get him into court, but he had long stretches of sobriety, which makes me believe that he may have been bipolar and that he may have been self-medicating mm. with alcohol because he could... When he started representing Darrow, he went a couple of months, you know, staying sober. Uh, and then there was a point in the trial where he knew he was going to have downtime for a couple of days. And he jumped on it. And the next thing you know, he was missing in action. <laughs> he was nowhere to be found. But when he did turn up, he was, you know, clean and shaven and, and ready for action. Uh, so. So, so he was he was he was a special kind of character, but but yes, very tragic, and very sad to see the way he died. He 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 did drink himself to death. Yeah. If you read his daughter, if you read his daughter Adela's memoir, she, she says that he came to her one day and said, "I'm going to go drink myself to death. I can't deal with this anymore." That's sad. That's very sad. No, it is very sad, and it's also sad, you know, for the world at large because you lose a brilliant mind. Um, you know, yes. he's only, he was only 52 when he died. You probably could imagine another 25 years of, of him being a functioning and really intelligent contributor to society. It's very sad. Yeah, it is because he, he was a lecturer in medical schools and was a lecturer in law school. So obviously he had plenty to offer. Well, you know, this, I got to tell you, this book is really fascinating and, um, really an interesting picture of not only of a really interesting man and uh, and of other people his wife and others but also of the era and uh the you know the particular place and time and what was going on there tremendously interesting and i really appreciate your uh spending a little time talking about it i hope this gave readers a, a flavor a little bit of a flavor of what the book has to offer which i think is oh and i want to say one other thing um, and that is, you, you're really a good writer. You tell a good story and you propel the narrative really well. So, um, you know, I think that uh, that's important to point out as well. Um, it's not just a good story. It's actually a well-written book. And I appreciate that. Well, thank you very much for the praise. It means a lot coming from you. And so I know you read a lot and you deal with books a lot. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Nelson, for talking to me today. This has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk. I've been talking to Nelson Johnson about a terrific book, 
called Darrow's Nightmare, which I really recommend. Thank you.